We are in Romans chapter 5, and I hope that you have seen um, some wonderful things as we've walked through uh, these sections. We are looking at what it is to live the Christ life, and we're starting to transition into the fact that everything that we would ever need has already been given to us. In fact, I would ask you to maybe start getting used to the phrase, already blessings, the already blessings that we have in Christ. Uh, if you're someone last week who did the dividing line in the middle uh, of the piece of paper and you were able to put on there the difference between standing and state or position and condition, uh, then you've already got some things written down, a good list going as far as what those matters are so that we keep them distinct and separate. Paul keeps them separate. We want to keep them separate. So, so here's what I'm going to ask we do before we jump in. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for all that it tells us, knowing us better than we know ourselves, and all that Jesus has accomplished that we could never even put a finger to. And I pray, God, uh, that today our hearts be deeply impacted and that we would grow in the knowledge uh, of our Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we find in this passage are there are seven blessings. There are seven additional blessings that stand on top of, uh, or excuse me, there are seven additional blessings that would go part and parcel with the idea of forgiveness of sins. And remember, this is the issue that we're dealing with. On the cross, Jesus has forgiven our sins, which means every offense that we've ever committed, past, present, or future, it does not matter. They were all future for Jesus at the time when he died for them. But this includes the people of the Old Testament time all the way back to Adam as well. He paid for all sin. In fact, if you think about how incredible the gospel is, we are told that Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That right there is grace. To think that Jesus not only paid for sins, but became sin for us. That's incredible. To think that there is no way whatsoever that righteousness would ever look my way, and yet I have it completely. That's amazing. So with that being said, we step into chapter 5 of Romans. So let's read Romans Chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope or sorry, in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The first already blessing that we find here we reviewed last week 
The number one thing that we have is peace. You have peace with God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've come to a peace situation. There is no more warring with him because of your separation of him. And I think this is really clear. I was really encouraged because I was listening to one of the AM stations driving here this morning, and I actually heard a pastor say, if you believe in Jesus, God is your father. If you do not believe in Jesus, Satan is your father, whether you know it or not. And that's the truth. Because apart from Christ, all we do is revert to the flesh and selfishness and pride, and it's all about us. And even for some Christians, it's still all about us with selfishness, the flesh, and pride. Jesus is what makes the difference. He is the solution to a different walk, period. I think it's important for us to recognize that at one time, Satan was our father. But when you come to know the gospel and you respond in faith, you are now transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are now a child of God. That's fantastic. And if that means anything, it means that the war's over. It means that there's now peace. So the very first thing that we have, peace. Second thing that we have looking down through here, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's indispensable to this. Notice, through whom we have obtained, here's number two, an introduction, access, by faith into this grace in which we stand. The number two already blessing that you have as a believer in Christ, regardless of what you do, will do, or have done, is the fact that you automatically stand in a position of favor before your Father. Automatically. You say, how is that so? I say, Jesus Christ. In fact, I would guarantee almost every question you ask me about things like this, Jesus Christ is going to be the answer. Let's just go ahead and settle that, right? Jesus is going to be the answer to it. How in the world could I possibly live my life with a standing of God's grace consistently toward me? Never fluctuating. He's never more gracious to us at times when we're good and less gracious to us, still gracious so that he gets it in there, but less gracious to us at times that we're bad. No, he's gracious. And why is that? Standing, our standing, our location in Christ. That's where we are. So blessing one, peace with God. Blessing two, standing of favor with God. Blessing three, we exult, good word, boast, rejoice. You get to brag. How many people like to brag? Man, liars, every one of you. Face mask or not, raise your hand, you hypocrites. We all love to brag on something. Let me ask you a question. You got grandkids? Okay, all of you are liars then. There you go. You brag on those kids. They're only two days old, but they're so smart. He was doing calculus. Uh, come on. Anyway, you brag, you boast. What's interesting about this is this is something we get to boast about that we had absolutely nothing to do with. Because what do we do when that little child is slobbering calculus everywhere at two days old? Oh, well, must have come from my genes, right? That's what you're thinking. Came from me. Number one, no. Number two, you don't know calculus, okay? But what we find here is everything that we get to brag in is all because of what Jesus did. I can brag, I can speak 
boisterously about the fact that I have a certain hope, which is the glory of God. Chuck brought up a good, a good word for it, anticipation. It took him five minutes to remember what it was after he wrote it down. He did. I'm not kidding. That's not a joke. He goes, you know what a good word for that is? Um, uh, uh, and then he just smiled, and I thought, we'll never know. <laughs> and then he said, anticipation. I said, yes, that's a great one. We have anticipation. Let me ask you a question. What are you anticipating right now? Now, just think about it. Write it down if you want. What is your anticipation right now? Whatever it is, the one that you get to brag in is the fact that the glory of God is a certain thing for you and your brothers and sisters around you. It's certain. It's sure. It's locked up. It's done. can never be taken away. It is an already, past tense, blessing. Already. So those are the three things that we looked at. Now we're moving into a fun one. Verse three, and not only this, can everybody see the, can, can you kind of get the joy that Paul's going about here? I mean, he's just exploding. And not only this, what else, Paul? Tell us, tell us, tell us. But we also exult, rejoice, boast, brag in our tribulations. And all God's people said, what? Very few of God's people said, Amen. I'm with you, Paul. Peace sounds good. Favor sounds good. Glory sounds good. Trials? That sound good. Trials do not sound good. How do I know that? Because of how we meet trials. When a trial comes your way, tribulation, same word, same word. How do you meet that trial? Now, let's clear up something real quick. A trial is something that comes upon you. It's not something you did to yourself. That's important. I got this trial of this credit card debt. Well, who swiped the card? Somebody else? No. That's your fault. That was you doing it. That's not a trial. I'm going to say this, and I mean it with all love and sincerity. For some of us, because of health concerns, maybe this situation that we just went through was a trial. I don't want to discount that. But for a lot of us, it was honestly just an inconvenience. And I think we need to be sober about knowing the difference. I couldn't go the places I wanted to go. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. And you found that the main part about the trial was I didn't get to do me. That's not a trial. That's just being selfish. Trials are things that come upon you. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. Trials are things that God allows to come your way. And how we meet them displays how we receive them. This is why we see such verses as Paul saying things like, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Because what's the first thing we do? Oh, not this again. Oh. Some of us are the greatest actors we know. Because we can take a situation, a molehill, and make a mountain for days. 
A tribulation is a hardship that comes upon you. You find yourself in the midst of it. You may not be for sure how you got there. And it's not just inconvenient. It's trying. It's pressing. It's stressful. And it's something that we have to be prepared to work through. And now back up. What was the attitude that Paul said you can carry into the tribulation? Exulting, boasting, rejoicing. I don't know one person I've ever seen goes, here comes a trial. Yeah. Right? Because then that's when we lean back and cup our hands and say, something wrong with that guy. The reason why we have a track record of hating trials is because we have failed to see trials the way God sees them. We hold so fast to our own perspective in engaging a trial that we miss what God's doing. We miss it completely. Now, before we jump into unfolding this process, because that's what this is, it's a process that he wants to show us. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to ask Mitch just to put it up on the screen of James 1. If you're familiar with trials, this is the trial verse. This is the tribulation verse. Notice what it says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Does that sound familiar? Sounds exactly like Romans 5.3. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, because that's what's under duress here, the testing of your faith, will you believe God in this incredible situation? Will you hold fast to his word in this incredible situation? That's what's being asked. Notice, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, there's a product going on, it produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. Everybody see the word let? Let it happen. Let it work. Let it do its thing. Stop looking for the trap door. Stop sinning your way out of it. Hold fast to the word and let it do its thing. Trust beyond your logical understanding. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You could set this passage next to the passage we're looking at, two pieces of paper, and you can start connecting lines of exactly what's going on here. You know what that tells me? It tells me that either A, we don't know something about how to handle trials, and B, they had it down pat so much to where two different authors writing at two different times had the same formula to deal with it. Everybody see that? So if you are not currently in a trial or a tribulation, you will be at some point in your life, guaranteed. It's going to happen. You can't get out of this world without them. Nobody just goes sailing, and that's it. Okay? So if you're not in it, you're going to be in it. If you are in it, you're going to come out of it. But you're either in one place or another. And the question is, how are you going to handle it? How does the Scripture say to handle it? Romans 5.3, not only this, but we boast in our tribulations. And here's probably the key word. Knowing. Everybody see that word? Knowing. Mark it. If you've got your paper, mark it. Knowing. 
It's the Greek word, or it comes from the Greek word oida. It's the idea of recognizing something or understanding something. I recognize that the chairs are spaced unusually apart, and therefore my actions proceeding out of this will be conducted differently as to how I normally would have handled the situation. So notice what this is saying is, you can boast in a tribulation, why? Because you need to recognize something. The tribulation is not just an inconvenience, a hardship. God hates me. Why isn't he being graceful? Where was he when this happened? And we're questioning basic attributes like his presence and his love and his, and his, his grace towards us and those types of things. We cannot afford to be that shallow of a body of Christ. Those are elementary things that we need to go back over and reassess ourselves and reorient ourselves with so that we don't blaspheme God in our thoughts. That's exactly what takes place in these situations. And so, knowing what? Recognizing what? Look what it says. That tribulation, number one, a situation. If you want to write above that, what is tribulation? Essentially, you find yourself in a situation. This just suddenly happened. So now I'm in a situation, and look what it says. Your situation, your tribulation, brings about perseverance. You know what that is? Number two, your response. Now here's a question. What does it mean to persevere? We hear about this from athletes, don't we? That track record, I had to have it, so I persevered. I had to persevere in my rigorous training. Well, I didn't know if we were going to make it out of the battlefield alive, but we persevered. We endured. And it all has to do with how smart we are, how strong we are, how we had a will that just wouldn't break, how we were disciplined and making sure to see it through so we got the right result. I've been disciplined for years in working on making this ab perfect. You guys are like, you weren't disciplined at all. Correct. I was not. But we often chalk up the idea of perseverance, get this, to how well we perform. Does everybody see that's works? We're not even in the works passage of Romans yet. In fact, that don't even happen until you get into chapter 12. We're way far away from that destination. Which tells me that the way we view perseverance might need to be corrected. Because I will tell you this. Perseverance has absolutely nothing to do with what we do. It has nothing to do with you having a strategy to get out of a situation. It has nothing to do with how strong you can be in a situation. It has nothing to do with if you can get all your friends around you in a situation. It has nothing to do with that. You say, well, that sounds foreign to me because we're not seeing it from God's perspective. A tribulation is not about how are you going to do better here? Oh, well, I'm not going to say those words anymore. Well, I'm not going to watch those shows anymore. It's not some exercise in you recognizing legalists. This is why Lent is the biggest waste of time in the world. If it wasn't right for you to do during those days, why are you going back to it? That's dumb. And those are my feelings about it. But you say, okay, if perseverance doesn't have anything to do with me being strong, being active, what does it have to do with? 
If I could give it one word, I would say this, being. B-E-I-N-G. Write it down and let me convince you. I do want you to take your Bibles and turn to this. 2 Corinthians, turn back. 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. Because Paul is going to give us the key of what perseverance looks like. In fact, when we talk about, I've come upon a tribulation, I need to get through it. What that tells you is there needs to be some sort of power that makes perseverance possible. Now let me reiterate a significant truth. The flesh profits nothing. It is good for nothing. Our flesh will never accomplish anything. Even as Christians, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? And any stock that we put in the flesh is not going to result in perseverance. If it does, in the way that we gauge what perseverance should look like, then the person that gets the glory is who? Me. Because it was my discipline, my strategy, my power, my strength, my ingenuity, my character. There's no place for God. There's no place for His Word. In fact, by doing it through works, we've already taken the lavishness of grace and we've drained the swamp. Don't need grace, I'll do it. Get it out of here. Let me show you something interesting about the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other, and if you're familiar with this, Paul was actually given a glimpse of God's throne room. Okay? Now you talk about mind-blowing. You know? That's one of those things that not just turns your hair white, it makes it fall out. Okay? He saw it. And he saw it to a degree to where he couldn't even find words to describe it. It was something other that he couldn't grasp. And so because of these, the greatness of these revelations, notice, for this reason to keep me from, look at it, exalting myself, making much of myself, finding the boasting in myself. Hey, look at what I know. Look at what I've seen. Notice, in order to remove that temptation, here's what happened. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And the idea there to torment is the idea to strike me or to swing a blow, to maltreat me. To keep me low is the idea. To humble me so that I didn't use that as grounds for bringing attention to myself so that Paul wouldn't be the center of people's attention and he wouldn't get the glory. Notice it says here, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. You know why that's important? Because let's be honest, guys, that's our go-to method of operation, isn't it? Isn't that what it is? Look at what I did. Oh, I would never act like that. Are you sure? Because right now you're just exalting your own righteousness of how you wouldn't act in a situation. Why not be honest and recognize I would sit in this? There doesn't need to be any of me in this tribulation. Some of us are too smart for our own good and too disciplined for our own good that we would take 
regardless of our intentions, a glory in this. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So notice what he says, verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave. I know some of you are looking at that and going, he only did it three times? I would have done it 40 times, right? Within the span of three minutes. But watch the key. Watch the answer. Verse 9, and he has said to me, my grace, uh-oh, if you bring works into it, you can't have grace, okay? Pay attention. If you try to bring your works into this, you cannot have grace. My grace is, what's the word, church? Sufficient for you. In other words, it'll give you everything you need. It'll do everything it needs to be done. It will accomplish all. According to your standards, no. According to my standards, no. Let me tell you a secret. My standards are far too low. According to God's standards, what is he trying to accomplish in a trial? My grace is sufficient for you. Look what it says. For power is what? Perfected. And how? Notice that. The way that you persevere in a trial is weakness. If you want to know how to endure through a hardship, it is not, oh my gosh, we got to figure out what to do as we're slapping our cheeks and reaching for tissues and anything else that we would possibly do. You know what it is? It is a submission to the Word of God. It is coming to God face on the floor and saying, I have no answers and there is nothing that I can do. And if there was anything that I could do in this situation, it would be far less than what you could accomplish here. Why? Because then you start looking at a trial from God's perspective. It is humbly casting yourself at the feet of Christ to make the difference. Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. Don't cut it short. God is accomplishing something, and His grace is sufficient in the midst of it. Why? Because power, not our power, not our strength, not our muscles, not our brain power, not the power of community, not any of that stuff. God's power is perfected how? In what way? Weakness. Don't miss it, guys. Now, come on. You didn't come to church to fall asleep just because we didn't serve coffee this morning. By the way, the coffee kiosk is open over there. Go over and get you some. I did. The key is weakness. If you've been on social media lately, and you notice the way that Christians want to deal with the trials and tribulations that we see right now, it's always coming up with the clever scripture and giving the careful little worded antidote that fits within 280 characters so they can post it well in order to make other people feel guilty or make themselves feel superior. We are a prideful people. I have no answer except Jesus. And if what's been going on over the past four or five days has taught me anything, it's that personal strength is not the answer. It's that asserting my rights are not the answer. It's that turning every situation to make it political is not the answer. 
When you're focused on the biblical, you ain't got time to be political. Because Jesus Christ crowds all that stuff out. And he's got the whole world in his hands, right? See, you know this. And that's biblical. But the question is, is how do I get through this, God? How do I deal with it? Coming to him and saying, help. Now we're starting to get the picture. Now we're starting to recognize where we need to be in the midst of that tribulation. I've been reading a lot of Watchman Knee during our time in reserve, if you want to call it that. If you haven't read him, I encourage you to do so and to do so discerningly. There's some things I don't agree with. There's some things he understands about God that I only wish I did. But he used to tell the story of a man who was drowning in a lake in China. And all the Chinese people were gathered up on the shore going, we got to do something, we got to do something. And the guy is flailing, and he's moving, and he's kicking, and he's screaming, and he's yelling, and he's screaming for help. And all the people are saying, we've got to do something. And they look over at the village's strongest swimmer. And they say, why aren't you doing anything? And he's just standing there on the edge of the shore watching and watching. Get in there. Save him. Do something. What is wrong with you? And finally, when it seemed like the man was going to go under for the last time, the guy jumped in. Powerful strokes. Got to him, wrapped his arm under him, and swam back to the shore. And no one cheered. A man walked up to him and said, I've never seen something so selfish in my life. You waited until the last moment to possibly save that man. What in the world were you doing? And the swimmer said, you don't understand. As long as he was fighting... He would have drowned us both. It wasn't until he gave up and became weak that I could save him. That's the same in every trial. We think that somehow we're going to power through difficult situations on our own. We just need to stick together. No, we just need to stick to Jesus. We're already all in him. It ain't going to kill us to get a little closer. And I guarantee what you'll find out. If we all draw closer to Jesus, next thing you know, we're knocking shoulders with one another. There's where the closeness comes. There's where the sticking together comes. It's because we've gotten rid of all of our plans and aspirations. And we said, Lord, I'm not going to fight this anymore in my own power. Whatever you will. And guess what? Then he steps in and saves you. Then he steps in and deals with it. Why? Well, take a look at what comes next. Tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, what's the result? Proven character. Because God is in the business of developing his people to look like his son. This might bring to your mind when you connect the dots. I did not come to do my own will, but the will of the Father 
who sent me. God in the flesh didn't even do his own God in the flesh will. Instead, he submitted himself to the will of his Father in heaven. Everybody see how radical that is? What does proven character mean here? It's the idea of a smelting pot. It's the idea of setting gold on fire to the point where it melts. And if you're familiar with that process looks like, any element that is in that gold that seems impure will rise to the surface because of the heat. And then they have a scraper that they scrape along the top in order to move it and they keep heating it. More comes to the top, the more stubborn impurities. Everybody connect the application on that one. The Lord moves that off there. Why? Because when he gets done, it's going to be a perfect, pure, undefiled piece of gold. Because of time of tribulation, a time of submitting yourself to the fire so that you will come out on the other end successful according to God's high standards, all of a sudden establishes a character in you because you've been trusting Christ through the whole thing. Now, what's the result of that? This is the great part. Look at the result. And perseverance, proven character, there's your result, and look what it pops out here. And proven character, what's the last one? Hope. Now, pause for a second. Didn't we see that our number three already blessing is hope? Notice that this is one of the ways that we realize that. The way you realize the greatness of the hope that is in store for you already in the glory of God is that when you go through a trial and you stop fighting and you submit in weakness to the word of God so that Christ can live his life through you and in doing so, your character will then be proven, be shown to be godly, holy, set apart and it will cause you to get a glimpse of hope. Why? Because Oprah didn't give you that answer. Because Bill Gates couldn't formulate something for you to put in your body in order to give you an answer for that. Because George Soros didn't need to buy a riot mob in order to make a solution for that. Because the world had nothing to say about coming out on the other end of the tribulation. Well, I want to come out looking good. Stop that. If you don't want to come out on the other side looking like Christ, you won't come out of it. That's the mindset. That's the difference. And here's what Paul is telling you. You can rejoice in a hard time. Why is that? God is working. It's one surefire way that you know God is working and he wants to work in us. He does it in many ways. Trials is just one of them. But trials is the most difficult one that we encounter in this life. Here's the amazing thing. He has not left us short of anything that we need to go through. It. In fact, I'll tell you, whatever you need to get through on the other side of the trial, he already gave you. You know what that means? You don't have to waste any breath praying for the solution. Why? He already gave it to you. And so you praise him for his victory now. God, I just need you to do this. God, I need you to just do this. No. God, I praise you that you've done this. Done. Let's not think that when Jesus died for us, he just stopped with our sins. 
He moved on. He died for all of us. And I don't mean all of us just like quantity of people. I mean quality of person. He's going to redeem every part to where it's conformed to the image of himself. That's his goal. And that is the hope. When I stand on the other side of a trial and I've watched God carry me through the entire situation, I can now see him in a greater light. And it ignites this hope of glory for me that the world could have never done. The world covers it up. It's darkness. This is light in life. It makes a grand difference. Now, how does this play out? Notice it says here, improving character hope, verse 5, and hope, and real quick, if you want to know what to label hope, hope is the pinnacle. That's what it is. Real quick, tribulation is your situation. Perseverance is your response. Proving character is the result. Hope is the pinnacle. It's the top so that you can look down on everything else from a lofty position. Hope does not disappoint. I mean, let's be honest. That's what we're really scared about when we trust God with more than just our salvation, right? Somehow we're going to get disappointed on the other end of this. Somehow he's going to let me down. It's going to be far less than what I expected. And so I'm going to cling to my stuff because it's comfortable, it's familiar, and I can manipulate it. But good grief, it's a scary thing to say, God, your will be done and submit yourself to his presence. Everybody realize we all have control issues. We all do. I saw something fantastic comes to my mind. I should have brought up at the beginning. That would have been what a good preacher would have done. I didn't do it. Between mid-March and mid-April, prescriptions for psychotropic drugs went up 86%. That is drugs for depression, anti-depression medicine, those types of things. Now, I'm not here to knock you if you need that stuff and if your doctor has faithfully prescribed you that stuff, but here's what I'm just saying. The world doesn't know how to deal with tribulation. That's the result. Medicate it. Buy your way out. That's not a solution. That's one in one's own strength. That's not weakness. And there is no power there. Why? Because God had no room to work. So now notice, this hope does not disappoint. You will not be disappointed. I hope you didn't come to church today and listen to my sermon and now you're disappointed. It doesn't disappoint. Why? Look at the next thing. Hope does not disappoint because... The love of God. There's number five. Already blessing number five. We have the love of God. And what has gone on? It's been poured out. Poured out already. It has been. God's love has been poured out already on us. It's already happened. God already loves you maximum. He will never love you less. He already loves you completely. Well, I don't feel the love of God. Praise God, because then your head would explode. If you felt the love of God, you couldn't handle it. But let me tell you this, it's a fact. And you don't need anything else but the integrity of God's word to tell you. Because it's never been proven wrong. 
So our number five already blessing, we have the love of God. How do we know this? Look what it says. Within our hearts. Notice our. He includes himself. Through, here's the channel it comes through, the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Uh Uh-oh, already blessing number six. The Holy Spirit has already been deposited into us as a guarantee of the future hope of glory that is to come. So number five, God's love is poured out in us through number six, the indwelling Holy Spirit, which testifies to number three, the hope that's been given to us. There's your calculus. There's your adding. Those are numbers I'm excited about. I did horrible at math. Move on. So notice the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, Paul wants to give a quick explanation of how the love of God looks. Verse 6 starts with the causal conjunction for. Let me explain it is what Paul is saying. While we were still helpless, there's a diagnosis. While we were still existing with Satan as our father. While we were helpless, look what it says. At the right time, that's God's timing. Christ died for the ungodly. There's our internal condition apart from him. Notice we're diagnosed as helpless. And we're ungodly internally. Boy, we're a nice lot. Everybody see how appealing we are for savability? Yes? Think about it. Now notice what he says next in light of that. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. That's an upright person. That's an honest person. I don't know if I'd die for that guy. Can you think of anybody that's honest in your life and that's the reason why you would die for them? No, they're probably too honest with you and that's why you're like, ain't time for you, right? But you think, "Mm, no. And then, maybe, but it says here, though perhaps for a good man, for somebody who's charitable and helpful and loves others, even pagans can be that way, someone might dare to die. Mm." Usually if they have that deciding whether or not they would, the answer is no. But they're being gracious about it, right? You might think about your spouse. You die for your spouse. Yes. Die for your kids. Sure. But here's what's interesting. God is otherworldly in the fact that he doesn't take anything about us into account. And he dies for us anyway. In other words, let me, let me make it clear. God does not measure our worth before he pays for our sins. Whether we're worthy or not is not on his barometer. What he's concerned about is sins, and they need to be paid for. Why is that? Because they separate us from him, and he hates that. What does it say? You know this verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners and helpless, and ungodly, right? What's it say? Christ died for us. That's what love looks like. It's great personal cost. Past behaviors, actions, attitudes, origins, doesn't matter. He's not discriminating. He didn't just die for some people and not for others. Notice it's perfect. And here's the thing, whether you believe in Christ or not, it's true regardless of what you think about it. 
God knows there's nothing good in us. That was ruined at the fall. But yet he dies anyway. Why? Because let's be honest, guys. He wants to be with us. Doesn't need us. He wants to be with us. What do we call this? Surprise, surprise, I found a good quote. Mitch, if you wouldn't mind, bring that quote up. The difference between love and grace lies in the fact that love is within and grace is without. Love is primarily an inward feeling, while grace is an outward act. When love is turned into action, it becomes grace. And when grace is traced back to its feeling, it is love. Without love, grace cannot come into being. Grace exists because love exists. If love is the motivation for God to save ungodly, depraved sinners, then his action of Jesus Christ on the cross is grace. And what comes out of that love, action, grace are blessings and blessings and blessings that you don't have anything to do with, but have been freely given to you. Why does he bring it around to the love of God with Jesus on the cross? Because that's the type of humble thinking cultivated that sustained you in the trial. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have a perfect and divine formula for dealing with trials. And you are asking for us to provide nothing and to simply look at what has been provided for us. If we are in a tribulation, if we feel that we are drowning now, convince us that we need to give up the fight and submit ourselves to being rescued out of it to get out of your way and let you do the work and to do it with the blessings that you've already freely given us out of justification by faith. All of this centers in on Jesus Christ. He alone makes it possible. He alone makes it perfect. Father, convince our hearts and minds. May we contemplate these truths. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.